Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Darren Bronstetter, joined as always. Well, not as always. I mean, you're, you're a busy man, as most of the time, by Ashazuka Joe Maltolini. I try. You call me out early on the show like this is how we're going to start it, calling me out? I guess so. Well, you should call me out. I'm late. I uh, I went gro- you, you were supposed to do this an hour ago, and then you got uh, on a call, and then I was like, okay, I'll go grocery shopping. How long could that take? And, of course, I'm in line, and uh, then I have to line up to check out and all that stuff. So uh, I got I got delayed. I heard Toronto as of uh, next week, mandatory for masks in public spaces. Yeah, I wore my mask. You know what? I I, I don't like wearing the mask because it hurts my ears with my glasses. It, it annoys me. But you know what? Everybody, it makes people more comfortable if you wear the mask. And I'm I'm all yeah. about making people feel more comfortable. I, I don't like wearing it because with my glasses, it like pushes pushes up against my ears and it really irritates me. But you know what? Whatever. I mean, it's we're in the midst of a pandemic. I don't know if you saw how many cases Florida had yesterday. Did you see how many? Uh-huh. No, I didn't see it, but I've been seeing those beach pictures. Yeah, 10,500 in one day. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I saw pictures of Wasega Beach, and it's kind of looking like Florida these days, too. So I don't know if we're doing much better over here. Well, I think we are because, uh, at least in that area, you're not seeing a lot of cases. We're seeing about 50 cases a day right now in Toronto. So things are turning the corner. Everybody's just got to stay responsible, you know, make sure that everything goes okay. Unfortunately, the uh, contact tracing app that they were going to put out in Ontario got delayed. So that's no good, but at least it seems like the cases are going down slowly but surely. So uh, hopefully we can get back to a little bit of normalcy, and your gym can get opened up soon. More yeah, seriously. I mean, I'm more concerned about the deaths, to be honest with you, and because we can get it. I probably may have had it. I'm fine. I didn't even know any real symptoms, but I mean, I just think it's the deaths that matter. And I've been hearing a lot of. I've been falling into the. It's taking too long to open up. I've been falling into some conspiracies, but. Some people have even said that uh, a lot of the deaths that are they're reporting are from other causes. And if, say, they get into a car accident and they had coronavirus, that meant they put the death towards coronavirus instead of the accident. So, I mean, our death numbers may be all over the place, which might be skewing info. But I agree. I don't mind the public spaces wearing the masks, but uh, I just don't think – the control of it's way out of control now, and there's no forcing of people to do things now. I think we're beyond that point. Well, I think that we did a good job uh, in Ontario of, of getting things under control, right? Like, I think that the shutdown did serve a purpose. You're seeing the numbers go down, and the, the curve's been flattened, and it's going, being flattened at, like, a good rate, and it's going down. So, uh, you know, I think, I think things are uh, turning the corner. But why don't we talk a little bit about uh, Dustin uh, Poirier and uh, Dan Hooker. You know, yeah. I was watching that fight, and I after the second round, I, I had Hooker winning the first two rounds. I said, yeah, no, nobody's beaten Dustin Poirier in this kind of fight, and right now Dan Hooker is, but let's see if he can maintain that, and he couldn't, because Dustin yeah. Poirier does not... He, the funny thing about Poirier is he looks tired in the first round. He takes these deep breaths, but he, he's able to go. Yeah. It's experience, man. It's like his ability, like... The number one thing that comes with fight experience, and I mean, we saw it, and I talked about it a little bit in that Justin Gaethje fight. With experience, like fighting three rounds to five rounds is a huge difference. I mean, like you even look at my title fight. Um, most of my fights were three rounds, which I love. I get to go in there, and I don't have to pace myself at all. But if you adding those two rounds, you have to almost – employ what i call a boxing strategy so in 10 rounds of boxing you can't fight every round with full intensity same things in five round kickboxing or five round mma you need that little bit of a pace so i think poria understands that more where times between the rounds or you know you have to take little breaks within a round or take the power off a little bit time and then build that momentum and power so i think that's where the big experience came from it's that understanding the pace the intensity of your shots over five rounds that's a different because that's 25 minutes of fighting that's a lot i mean if you ask any even amateur fighter who fights three two-minute rounds that's the longest six minutes so 25 minutes of mma fighting is crazy and to see the pace and and, and the control in that pace is just a different beast yeah and that was the difference between his fight with felder which also went five rounds in that fight is that the fight with felder uh it seemed like he had uh was able to maintain a bit of a pace that, that was conducive to a five-round fight against Poirier. That's really hard to do because they were stand, they were both having a lot of success. They were both standing in front of each other. And I actually heard Rose Namajunas, she did an interview with Ariel yesterday where she said, you know, I don't think that Joanna versus Wei Li or Hooker versus um, Poirier are, fight, are potentially the fight of the year because, you know, we shouldn't be looking at those as being the great fights because there's no defense. She feels like 
defense is so underrated in these fights, and if you really want to have a great fight, there needs to be a good combination of both, rather than people just getting, you know, standing in front of each other and hitting each other. Well, I mean, let's bring up Mr. Defense himself, Floyd Mayweather. I mean, even though he was barely touched, you have to be a purist to appreciate that, right? You have to understand that it's not as exciting to be a defensive fighter, but the skill involved in defense is just, it's probably even harder than it is to strike. So um, someone like myself values that. I mean, I love the defensive part, seeing good counters, the, the option to evade and counter back. Um, but when you pick a fight of the night, a fight of the year, a fight of the century, it's entertainment. I think we have to take away a little bit of those um, defensive. What? Because it's a fight of the year because the defense wasn't good. If they're both defense was good, we wouldn't be talking about it as a fight of the year. So I think we – I agree with Rose as a purist and a martial artist, but um, I also have that side as a TV side where it's like it's about entertainment, the fans, the excitement, more blood, more cuts, more – bleeding um is what people like so a uh, fight of the year i think has to have one both guys almost getting hurt at one point of the fight i think that makes for excitement one guy almost being finished and then the, the comeback and the momentum shifts i think that makes for the fight that excitement i honestly man i just i love the big shots i mean as long as i can see those big power shots i love knockouts i love knockdowns to me almost a fight of the year should almost have a knockout at the end one of those fights that the last round got the finish, I think, are the ones that I value more. Finishes. It's martial arts. We want the finish. So for me, a fight of the year has to be close, momentum change, and has to have a finish. So would that put Gaethje and Ferguson at the top of your list? I like it. I would say it's up there because of that. I mean, because of the excitement. Something spectacular happened at the end that made it for that extra exciting that's why i think a lot of my fights with nikki holtzkin i think it it made it was an exciting fight going up to it but what made it that much more exciting was me getting dropped in the last 10 seconds of the fight like oh my god it's so close and then oh like that big excitement um happens at the end i think of that uh yair rodriguez that spinning elbow at the last second of the round like those are things that are like wow he actually even though he was tired took a beating he still got the finish and that's that's just classy martial arts that's beautiful um when we talk about defensive fighters i'd like to get your opinion on this because it's never really talked about in mma in terms of who the best defensive fighters are who do you think are the best defensive fighters in mma from what you i think seen? the best defensive fighters are a lot of the times the wrestlers i mean if you can wrestle well um get a guy on the floor and stuff. that's the safest way um to be a defensive fighter in mixed martial arts i mean um the times you see someone like khabib getting hit it's when he wants to engage in those stand-up battles right we saw him you know let me let me see how this stand-up goes a little bit so he engages it a little bit more but when he doesn't want to get hit if he grapples you throws you to the ground and just controls you like he ain't getting hit so Top position, controlling your opponent, I think that's the most defensive. So someone with strong wrestling and distance control are the ones. I mean, look at George St. Pierre in the beginning of his career. Like, I mean, his ability to move in and out and control distance was incredible. His ability to not get hit, shoot for the takedown and, and control top position was, you know, better than anyone. But as he got a little older, started staying in the pocket and mid-range a little bit more, we saw him get hit and, you know, take some big shots near the end of his career. So I think it's the strong wrestler is my final answer on that. I think it's Jones. Like, I, I don't even think it's particularly close. Like, from, if you look at the, the all-around game, striking, wrestling, like Jones was able to stuff many of Cormier's takedowns, most of them. And then mm -hmm. from a striking standpoint, he doesn't get hit very often. Like, I mean, that, that Dominic Reyes fight was a bit of an anomaly but he, his, like you mentioned, the distance control, his uh, wrestling yeah. in reverse, even his wrestling as a defensive mechanism, like, I, yeah. I, I feel like Jones doesn't get enough credit for that. And I, like you mentioned with Mayweather, you know, Jones is starting to get this reputation of being this five-round kind of decision Four fighter. Guys. Yeah, I was and, gonna and as a result of that, people don't really appreciate the greatness that he has in the cage because everybody's like, oh, he's not finishing people. It's a five-round fight. He's too defensive. He he's, doesn't take enough risks. But yeah. I think that Jones has proven to be, I think, the greatest fighter of all time, that we, at least that we've ever seen in terms of MMA. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that he just doesn't get enough credit for that. I agree, too, because even if you see John Jones, like, 
his use of the long guard, I mean, we're getting technical here, but like he can strike you and then control your hands from long range, use his distance control. But uh, yeah, I would say John Jones, you're right, is probably one of the most. I mean, he was susceptible to some of the kicking and stuff, but he can switch stances. He moves his space, controls range well. I'm um, just trying to think of anyone else who pops up in my mind. Uh, I mean, if you look at someone like Demetrius Johnson, whose ability to wrestle, move, distance control, blitz in, not get hit, I mean, that's another guy that kind of stands up. And Connor, I think, from a striking standpoint, is one of the better defensive strikers in MMA. Yeah. I mean, uh, didn't he take some bigger shots against Nate? I thought he took some bigger shots. Yeah, but... I, I think a lot of that was due to exhaustion. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. Yeah. But, I mean, I do agree, but it's – distance control him fighting as a southpaw like people being spare, uh, scared to engage and counter but even wonderboy thompson because of that threat the distance control he barely gets hit i mean the one time he did get big shots he did get dropped from woodley he did get dropped from pettis so we've seen him get hit but it's not that he doesn't get hit often but when he does get hit it's been serious consequences but his ability to control distance that's what all fighting is if you can control distance and put yourself in a position better than your opponent, you're going to be more successful. Yeah, absolutely. When I heard Rose talk about it, I just thought it was a very underrated uh, commodity that people don't really talk about. It's just defense and MMA, and uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, Mike Perry, one corner person, his girlfriend, gets yeah. the job done against Mickey Gall. Gall, I thought, looked good for about the first three minutes of the fight, but then from yeah. there, Perry was able to turn it around and really get into cruise control and win. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what we expected. I mean, I think he got – Perry got away with uh, the one corner because of Mickey Gall. I mean, when you fight Vicente Luque or one of these bigger guys, and you kind of need that corner. You've taken big shots. You might be unconscious in your corner. You might need that love and, and attention. But uh, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I know he's all proud about it and uh, and everything. But I do understand where he's coming from because it – it does get pricey to pay your corner sometimes. I've been in both situations now where I've been the fighter who feels like giving up 30% of his purse is way too much. I'm like, I'm giving away 30% of my purse. Like, that is crazy to me. Like, I, like I've had falling out with coaches and people because of, you know, uh, the discussion on it. So I understand where it's frustrating. I mean, even when I fought in Japan, they automatically take 30% taxes away from you. And then I'm paying 30% on top of that. Then you come here and you pay another, you know, 30, 40%, you know, taxes as well. So I understand why it's frustrating to have to, you know, always be paying out your corners. But I think the higher quality guys need that you know person in their corner and maybe he's just never built that relationship just to pay someone just to have them in your corner i understand it's frustrating but like when you have that right person like um i grew up with the same close-knit team like those are brothers like i need those guys in my corner it's a little too difficult uh just to put someone random so if he doesn't have that close person it's probably best that you know he doesn't have to pay out as much as he is so i get it but I just think the opponent gave him the win and not needed to dig deep and kind of use that connection with his corner to pull through. Absolutely. Well, well, I was thinking about this. I feel like even though you are a coach, I feel like you would be okay without having like more than one coach in your corner. That if you had just one coach, I feel like you're the type of guy that you work a lot on instinct. Am I right on that? Well, I would say... A lot of times, what a lot of people didn't know, I had my main coach here um, that um, never really traveled with me on the international fights. So when I fought international, when I fought Murat Derechi, when I fought Holtzkin, Raymond Daniels, I didn't have my main coach in my corner. It was at that point my main training partner who was a, an early pro in his career, Troy Sheridan, and my business partner now. He's one of my best friends. But it was just me and him and Matt Special, my other pro MMA fighter here. It was the three of us just going to the corners. Like, we had no experience, no – we had no one. It was basically just me and my friend going to fight the best in the world. I mean, yes, he trained with me every day. He knew our system, the coaching, and he was great at it. But we had to learn as we went on. I mean, we didn't pay each other. I was watching, man, he was probably, we're watching how to wrap each other's hands on the planes as we're going to big glory fights, you know? Like, I don't know, like, Troy, like, I just, 
you know, trusted him that he would deal with my cuts, the concussions. And it's what we do. It's that brotherhood. So sometimes it's kind of like if you don't have that brotherhood in martial arts, it's hard, you know. So that's where I think his frustration is coming from. He doesn't really have this close bonds of martial artists around him. Maybe he's got training partners or or something. But, uh, yeah, I'd be down. I'd be down to train Mike. But the one thing, the one point that came up to me uh, recently was watching The Last Dance that Michael Jordan, um, you know, the, the Chicago Bulls. It's like you have to understand that someone like um, Dennis Rodman is a different player than Jordan was, is a different player than Pippen was. So as his coach, I can't coach, for example, Mike Perry the same way I'm going to coach Matt Special or Tariq or Troy or they're different fighters. And I think he just needs a coach that matches his style. And that's. That's where good coaching comes in. Everyone is unique and different. For sure. And um, just uh, just looking at uh, at Perry and and Gall, I think one tough thing about fighting Mike Perry, and I think I wrote this on Twitter, was like you have a little bit of success about, against him, and you're like, okay, well, this isn't that bad. I'm not, I shouldn't be scared of this guy. And then he hits yeah. you, and like you have to basically reset mentally because of just like how dangerous this guy is. Like in your head. You basically yeah. you've got to basically be like, oh well, I, I gotta you know this is gonna be a tough guy to beat now. How how imp- how important is it against a guy like Mike Perry to be able to mentally overcome the idea of fighting a guy that kind of presents himself as a loose cannon and, and as a guy who um, has a lot of like is a very just intimidating guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've cornered and fought a lot of guys that had that similar style, so. What happens is they have one thing that they do and they do it really well. So coaching and game planning for it, you're like, oh, it's easy. Mike Perry comes forward. He comes in with his hands down, moving his head. We got to use the jab. We got to keep our distance. We got to keep straight punches again, Mike Perry. As soon as he comes in, we got to have a straight punch, move our feet. Don't get caught up in mid ranges. As he does close the distance, we need to clinch. In theory, that sounds great. Okay, so I mean, you train that way, you do it. But what I saw with Mike Perry is I saw Mickey Gall trying to do the right strategy. But one, the Mike Tyson line, everyone's got a plan until they get hit. So the one thing that Mike Perry did well is just too much for Mickey Gall at that point. So um, even though you had the game plan, the pressure was just a little too much. And and if someone will look at Mike Perry's technique and be like, oh, he throws his punches so weird and so awkward. But, like, it's funny because he um, posted on his social media the way he throws his punches because he throws his punches almost coming down. And you're like, well, that's not how you throw a punch. Like, that's ridiculous. But he showed maybe a couple months, uh, maybe a month ago, a, a technique of uh, the week on his Instagram talking about why he punches like that. And if you look at the sh- biggest shots and all the shots he landed on goal were that type of punches. So he's got a unique style and it works. But what I noticed, number one, is that strength and power. When he grabbed Mickey Gall, it was just that big. He's a real strong 170 pound fighter mickey gall looked a little bit more fragile where the neck the back of uh the legs of, of you know mike perry were just too big and too strong he was too physical yeah and i think the gall i mean one thing about gall is it was cool for him to get into the ufc as a 1-0 fighter about five years ago got in as a 1-0 fighter because he wanted to face cm punk um but that might have done him a disservice and I, I spoke to him about it last week on the show, and I, I said, like, it takes a really rare individual to be where he's at. Like, he's, he, he comes into the UFC at 1-0, and he has, like, three wins in the UFC. So he went from, like, basically being, like, a, a one, one professional fight uh, record on the, the professional scene to right into the big leagues. And, sure, he, I mean, he fought Mike Jackson. He, fight, he fought CM Punk. Like, those are guys that are not going to pose that much of a threat to you early on in your career. But as he continues... He hasn't fought the level of competition that you'd want to have someone have fought at this stage in their career if they got into the UFC maybe a, a year or two later. Yeah, it, it definitely caught up to him. I think the the fast track eventually catches up to you. You miss a lot in that time of development. Um, and I mean, again, I can relate it to my career. Like when I fought Holtzkin in Japan, like I didn't have time to develop in, as a professional within a, a year and a half. I went from no one's ever heard of Bazooka Joe. He's, well, I'll give it two years. I'm fighting in New York on the local scenes there. I'm eight ranked in North America. And then within a year and a half, I'm all of a sudden ranked number two or three in the world. So, like, I didn't have time to, oh, let me 
get hit a little bit to improve my boxing to maybe learn how to do something. No, I basically went right away. So after Holtzkin, I was like, man, my boxing isn't up to par against some of the elite in the world. So that's when I went into boxing. So I was learning on the job. Um, again, I am a better more qualified martial arts artist than most people in the world and especially Mickey Gao. But, um, it's, you do need to, you know, develop things as you go along that sometimes it's just time that'll, and the, the ring experience that you'll gain it from. Cause sometimes you just don't get that type of learning in the gym. Um, but good coaches will try to let you learn in the gym, but you just need that, that experience, the ring time. And Mickey Gall just needs more of it to get to that top 10. Well, when I mentioned, when there. I mentioned you to Mickey during the interview, he he looked uh, very excited, and he called you a legend. Oh, nice. I, I mean, he's worked with Joe Schilling, so, I mean, his striking looks good, and I think he's he has potential. I mean, it's nothing against I – don't, I don't think it was his mistake. I think he's doing everything in his power to, to, to kind of make good of the opportunity he was given. So um, I just – sometimes you got to give guys the right path. And if you're not marketable for the UFC, sometimes they don't want to give you that right path. They almost want to throw you to the big dogs, let you lose a couple of them. They're like, oh, we don't need you anymore kind of thing. So I hope – I think he's good. He's talented. We've seen him evolve and develop. So let's see maybe better fights for him. But I think quarantine time, guys are just getting thrown into big mismatch fights sometimes where the opportunity's there, you take it. And his, uh, his um, striking actually looked, I thought, a lot better than it had previously in that fight against Perry, even though he lost – um, your guy, the crochet boss, pulled yeah. out of his hat. That was a, that, that was an interesting submission. Yeah. And he actually uh, he actually messaged uh, he actually mess commented on one of our uh, team pictures saying that he needed some bazooka Joe training. But uh, I think he's managed by Tyson as well, so I'm sure in the future maybe we could uh, hook up soon. But he looked all right. I mean, I saw little signs of his improvement with uh, Winkle, uh, what's his there? Yeah, Winkle uh, John, yeah. Winkle John. I was going to say Winkle Jackson. I said Winkle Jackson. That's, Jack- That's Jackson Winkle John. Winkle John, yeah. yeah. I you're mix just, up you're just combining them into a couple names. And mixing in different names and orders. But yes, my point. But he was throwing the oblique kick. He looked good. He kept his distance. I mean, he ate low kicks. I mean, that's one of his big uh, susceptible things, even when uh, I was uh, – he fought. It's crazy, but – um, for those who know kickboxing, he fought on like his in his three maybe glory fights. Okay, let's see the kickboxing knowledge of people who listen. He fought Anderson Braddock Silva, who's fought in the old K ones. Who was many, on tough with him actually? Strangely enough, who was that? Sorry, he was on tough with Maurice Green also. Strangely, oh yeah, enough. yeah, they yeah. were end up being there. But yeah, yeah, they ended up fighting on the show, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. MMA too, and then they fought in kickboxing as well. So I mean, they've. You know, he took a lot of low kicks from him. Then he fought one of the scariest Romanian kickboxers in Catalin Morisano, who's this big, aggressive power puncher. And Green was doing good until he got caught with a big lunging left hook and ended up losing. But he just fought huge names in kickboxing and didn't care. So, And it's just weird to see him now being almost known for his grappling. I mean, I mean, two of his... Uh, yeah, he had a triangle in his, first, in his first fight, I think, in the UFC. And now... Yeah. Like that's not easy to pull off an arm triangle from bottom out of nowhere. Yeah. Is this one of the first times we've seen it in UFC. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the funny thing is, in the heavyweight division, people could pull off all kinds of wacky subs because when the sub defense sucks. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's I why Olenek has been able to luck, be so good. It's good. I hope to see. Like, I mean, I, he's that. He's one of those other people, like a Mickey Gall, almost like he's learning as he goes. Almost, he's still new to mixed martial arts. He's still new to combat sports. So. He's kind of, you know, doing his best for the time that he's there. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, what else? Uh, anything else of interest happened on the card? We got, I, like I called it with Julian Arosa and Sean Woodson. I said, this is a close you fight. Did. I said, this is a cl- Yeah, I said, this is a close fight. And uh, Arosa was, I think, the biggest underdog on the card. Yeah, he did. He did really good. I was really surprised. I mean, the problem with Woodson, I mean, he's got the skills, the footwork, the technique. But you need power. You, you need power. I mean... Someone like a, a Zabit, Magomed Sharapov there. Like, he's good, he's awkward, he moves, he touches. But with someone who can take a beating for a little bit and have to constantly close you down and take the shot, you need power to slow that pressure fighter down. Like we talked about Mickey Gall versus Perry. You can hit him once, you can hit him twice, you move. But if, I, if you're not hitting me hard enough to slow me down, 
I'm just going to keep walking forward. A 15-minute fight is going to catch up. I mean, we saw Kelvin Cater versus the beat. I mean, a lot of that constant pressure. If you can't slow me down, you're in trouble. So I think that's the situation there. Woodson needs to kind of tall, long frame. It's good. It's awkward. But he needs a little bit of snap to the punch. Keep the guys off him a little bit. But I can't believe his knees. I mean, his knees were just missing by inches. It's crazy. So Erosa, crazy tough, man. Looked awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, Poirier, uh, he was on with Holani also yesterday, and he was talking about how he's going to be really picky with the fights that he takes going forward because he just, for his long-term health, he knows he can't keep being in fights like this. And, uh, you know, he wants to be the undisputed champion one day, and he's only going to take fights that make sense from that perspective. So with that in mind, who do you think would make sense for him if he, want, if he doesn't want to fight again until early next year or the end of this year? I mean, Ferguson, I think, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's my pick. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, but you also could fight, like, the loser of... Like, he could fight Gaethje again if Gaethje loses. Or if Gaethje wins, I think you do that fight, too. I think Poirier should get the next title shot if Gaethje wins. Well, I mean, if Gaethje wins, yes, because Poirier has a win over Gaethje, it makes sense. Then that's the next storyline. But I would like to see, I think, Ferguson. But I'm also a little concerned now. But, like, Poirier, just all of his fights, and even Dan Hooker, like... I don't know the guys at all, but part of me as being their colleague, I'm a little concerned about the amount of shots these like Dan Hooker's taking beatings in his last couple fights. Like you can't continue to fight these high level guys and take beatings like that. Like uh, these guys are coming out of every fight with, you know, multiple orbital fractures, smashed up noses. Like, I mean, Poirier was talking about having head issues a little bit after this last fight. I mean, I just think they're getting into these wars. And to see now someone like Poirier and after the beating Ferguson took go after each other, I'm kind of like, eh, I kind of want to see their brains, you know, take a break a little bit because I want to see them fight for another couple more years. But, uh, again, if I'm going for excitement, not caring about brain damage, Poirier versus Ferguson is my pick. Listen to this, uh, this schedule from the last three years for Poirier. Eddie Alvarez, Pettis. Gaethje, Alvarez again, Holloway, Khabib, and Dan Hooker. Like, yeah. that's crazy. Like, yeah. that's the high. I think that might be the highest. Like, that must be the t- toughest strength of schedule over the last three years of any fighter. And even at 145, before he made the lightweight uh, change, like, I'm sure he fought some big names in that division, too. He fought Connor. He fought Cub Swanson. He fought Korean Zombie, Holloway. Insane. He fought Josh Grisby, who at the time was a massive prospect. I'm hearing a lot of there was a debate on one of the shows. Would you uh, would you call him a future Hall of Famer? Is he one of those guys for you? That's a great question. I think he's on the cusp. I mean, the problem is, like, to me, I think Gustafson is a future Hall of Famer because he was the second best guy in the light heavyweight division when, like, you just couldn't beat the champion. And Poirier might be in that same boat. Like, he might be the second best guy at lightweight. Him, you could argue Ferguson, you could argue Gaethje, but I mean, like you mentioned, Poirier's beaten Gaethje. Like, those guys, it's tough to take these guys out of the Hall of Fame mix just because they weren't a champion when the champion's Khabib, right? Yeah. Like, that's the part about it where you have to kind of weigh your options and, and, and try to figure it out. But I, I would think so. I mean, you have to look at who else is getting into the Hall of Fame. But the problem is the UFC Hall of Fame is kind of based on cronyism. I hate to say it. Like, there are a lot of people that should be in the, in the UFC Hall of Fame. I think, like, Frank Shamrock's not in the UFC Hall of Fame. Like, there are a lot of names... That, like, I think really? Dana, Dana just kind of doesn't like. <laughs> he doesn't put them in. <laughs> but, like, you know, so I don't, I don't know who decides who gets into the Hall of Fame. But, I mean, like, Rashad Evans was a champion. But can you say that Rashad Evans had a better career than Dustin Poirier? Probably not. I mean, yeah, it's tough to say. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, it's also maybe the influence he had in his community, the people, which I think he's been very impactful with his you know, charity work and stuff like that. But I just, even him being an interim champion, I just don't think he's getting that credit. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's too much of a nice guy sometimes to to get those big, exciting fights or something. But I just think from the years he's fought, the names that you just brought up that he's fought, like he's definitely, you know, in talks of it in my eyes. Now, let me give you like four names and you tell me you have one vote. As to who gets into the Hall of Fame. One of the four people in yeah, the Hall of Fame. I'm going to give you four names. I'm coming up with them on the fly. So right. you've got, you've got uh, Dustin Poirier. Okay. You've got Yoel Romero. 
Okay. You've got Alexander Gustafson. Okay. And you've got... Um, let me come up with another one. That's uh, and you've got let, let's say um, let's say Tony Ferguson. So those four. Hmm. You can only pick I one. I think of, them. Uh, of the four, Gustafson's out for me. Of the four, okay. I wouldn't put him there. Uh, huh. So Romero never a champion, but fought for the Romero, title on several I occasions. I don't think I put Romero. I think it's Poirier or uh, or Ferguson. I think, okay, final answer, ah, it's hard because Poirier beats Ferguson. Well, let me t- right? well so you, don't know that, you don't know that for a fact, but let, let me, let me like Ferguson, the most impressive thing about Ferguson's career is that he had that crazy win streak in the hardest streak. division. This is what's confusing so, but me. But let me, let me run down the win streak for you, and maybe it'll change your mind. So let's, let's start from the top. So you've got Mike Rio, Katsunori Kakuno, Danny Castillo, Abel Trujillo, Gleason Tebow, Josh Thompson, Edson Barboza, Lando Venata, Rafael Dos Anjos, right after he was champion. Uh, Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, Cowboy Cerrone. That's his win streak. Okay. So, yeah, already already I see the difference. But, yeah, that win streak. But that win streak almost kind of blinds out the, the name of the comp- uh, opponents. On paper, yes, I agree with you, especially him having the interim. But we could have also said Ferguson could have should have been maybe the champion at one point. Um, so yeah, based on what the interim, yeah, and so is Poirier. I think, uh, yeah, I think I got to go Poirier to be honest now after you read, you changed my mind. I was about to go Ferguson. I think last second. But but, hold on. But here's the case for Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson has two losses. He's got Michael Johnson and he's got that last fight to Gaethje. The losses that, uh, Poirier has is Danny Castillo, Korean zombie, Cub Swanson, Connor, uh, Michael Johnson and Habib. So he's lost more fights. At 55, though, he's only lost what, once? He's lost to Habib and Michael Johnson, I believe, who won 55 also. Okay, that was before Michael Johnson went under. Because Michael Johnson now won 45, right? Yeah, Michael Johnson also was the only guy to beat Ferguson, right? And he gave Habib that big shot everyone keeps talking about too, right? Yeah, yeah. We rocked him a little bit, but I mean, mean, that fight – if we remember the we remember the end of that fight more than we remember that shot where Khabib was talking to him, he's like, "Quit, quit now, yeah. quit." <laughs> so, so that's it. Well, you gotta get going. I just really look yeah, at the I time. Yeah, I check my time. That's why All I right. pop there. All right. Well, I'm gonna let you go, Joe. Uh, right now, we got an interview with uh, Rory McDonald. He's got a, a special that's uh, on in the PFL. It's, uh, I believe it's exclusive to YouTube. Uh, that goes through his uh, his early years in MMA, his training, and all of that. So we'll get to uh, Rory McDonald. Here he is on the TSN MMA show. I'm pleased to be joined now by Rory McDonald. He's uh, part of the Red King Rundown. The PFL's released a docu series to uh, document the training regimen of Rory McDonald. Unfortunately, Rory, you can't compete this year. Uh, I know that signing with the PFL, your goal was to win that million dollars. But uh, how have you uh, dealt with that reality? Yeah, I mean, uh, everybody kind of got their year turned upside down with the with this whole virus thing. Uh, I was really hoping that I would still be able to fight, you know. And you never know; I might be able to fight at the end of the year, but it definitely, uh, you know, was not the schedule that I imagined going into this year. So, what's your training been like? Are you still able to go to TriStar and, and get in rounds? Yeah, I, I train with a couple guys. Just um, it's the gym isn't open to like public and stuff yet, but you know I'm still able to train. And uh, when this whole quarantine started, nobody was training, so I was just doing everything out of uh, my home gym, and I was able to uh, you know work on things that you know usually you wouldn't you know when you're in a full time schedule as a martial artist. What are some of those things? Like, um, I was doing a lot of, like, power and strength work. Um, then I was doing, like, cardio, working on boxing because I got a heavy bag. Just uh, little things you could do on your own, you know, where you might, like, neglect those things when you have, like, partners every day doing partner work. So, yeah, it was interesting. Now, this time away, I guess, from reality, <laughs> essentially, is giving everybody a bit of time to reflect. You had a little bit more time with your family. How's that been for you? Yeah, it's been great. Um, we got through it uh, pretty good, considering. Um, 
I mean, we, we get to spend a lot of time regardless because of my career, but uh, we definitely got to spend a lot more time just with the whole quarantine thing. There was less things to bring the kids out to do. Uh, my four-year-old was really bored. She's, uh, you know, she loves to be active and uh, do, socializing and doing things. So that was a bit tough. Um, but all in all, uh, we managed pretty well. Yeah, someone with a four-year-old of his own, I, I, I get what you're saying. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> You hear what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I got three at home that are that are getting bored on, on a day-to-day basis, but uh, that's the reality of the situation. But when we watch this docu-series, is there anything we're going to learn about you that we might not know yet? Yeah, I think um, my pre-UFC career, you're going to learn a lot more about like my foundations of a martial artist, where I came from, how my upbringing was in the sport. Um, no one really told that story yet or wanted to, you know, throughout my career. So PFL really dived in and, you know, went back and kind of just, you know, showed where I came from, my roots. Well, if I recall, your first ever fight was against Jordan Meehan and you guys were like 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah. We were both 16. That's pretty crazy. It's weird that... You know, usually you fight somebody for the first time and it's your debut and both people, I guess, are 0-0. The chances of both getting to the UFC are probably pretty slim. Yeah, it was... Yeah, I was super pumped when I seen Jordan made the UFC. You know, it was it was pretty cool. I, I, for a little bit there, I thought we would we would maybe fight again, but it didn't... Our paths never crossed. I, I think he signed with Bellator at around the time that you left Bellator, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what's it been like uh, being part of the PFL right now? Obviously, there's no events, but uh, how how have they been treating you? How's that transition been? I mean, Bellator hasn't had events either, so it's not like you're uh, you know you're missing out. Had you stayed with Bellator, you would have still been competing. Everybody's kind of dealing with this new reality. Yeah, no, PFL has been great. Um, you know, they're they've taken care of me. Uh, you know, they uh, like uh, I don't know if you've seen, but they've been paying their uh, their fighters monthly. You know, even though uh, it's not what, you know, everyone is hoping for, at least, you know, they, they, they've they went out of their way and, and and dug out of their pockets to help help the fighters during a difficult time. So, you know, much respect and appreciation to them for that. And uh, I think they are motivated to do a, a, you know, a special event sometime at the end of the year if, if this whole virus thing clears up and allows it. Yeah, that is something that hasn't been mentioned enough, I think, is that the fighters are getting a stipend on a monthly basis from PFL. They, they don't need to do that. You guys are independent contractors, but I think it says a lot about that promotion that they are going forward and doing that. Yeah, I, I think uh, not a lot of people would do that in a time like this. So, you know, I think they genuinely care about the fighters. They put fighters first and um, they take care of their, uh, you know, their bullpen. What have you thought about all of these events, I guess, taking place in the UFC at the Apex or uh, they had that one in Jacksonville now they're doing the one in Yaz Island and Abu Dhabi, uh, no crowds. What's it been like watching those events and uh, and seeing how they've been operating? I'm definitely a little envious. You know, I would like to be in there too. Not, I'm not envious of the, you know, the whole testing process. I don't know if I would be too excited about getting one of those things stuck up my, stuck up my nose that I've been seeing, but uh I'm a little uh I'm a little envious of them being able to compete obviously I wish I wish I could be doing the same thing you know Absolutely um when, when we've spoken over the last year or two you've talked a lot about um your religion and and how um you've been able to um go back to that part of your life I guess you were raised Catholic um you kind of uh left religion for some time organized religion and now you're you're really back into it and and it's uh given you a lot of new meaning in your life um how has that journey been for you it's been good. Um, a couple years ago, I was uh, a little conflicted about my faith and fighting uh, after I fought John Fitch. After I was a little messed up inside about like, you know, if I, what I should be doing in life, you know, what does it mean to, you know, be a believer and be a fighter and things like that. And uh, this quarantine time has been more time for me to work on my mental game and and. Uh, I found that uh, lately I've been getting that that youthful passion about my sport and refocus myself and you know being a believer and you know 
things like that. Uh, just, you know, getting back to what I feel like God's purpose was for my life and not being so conflicted with thoughts and what I should do or not do and things like that. Um, I've been able to be pretty focused on what I want in this sport, what I want to achieve. And um, I think that's going to show in my my next fight. Yeah, and that does take time to rationalize those two things and having them connect. And I could tell that over time, that's been easier for you. You've been able to um, have those two things work in concert um, rather than against each other, I guess, like they had at that time you mentioned with John Fitch. Yeah, sure. There was a lot going on, you know. I was dealing with that tournament in a busy, uh, busy year. So it was hard to deal with all it all, you know, a lot of things going on in my life. So this this slowdown, you know, kind of worked in my favor to just get myself that that hunger back, you know. So I'm pretty excited about that. I was wondering if you were working with Kevin Lee. Uh, Kevin Lee was, um, I guess, in the uh, in the UFC and was working with you guys. What what um what was it like working with Kevin and uh, and um, having to watch I guess him fall short in in his last UFC fight? Yeah, I've trained a little bit with Kevin. He um, we didn't get too much work in, but you know I've got to uh, you know hang around at the gym, and he's a really nice guy. I enjoy him being around, and uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate uh, thing that he he lost, but uh, I do think he's making improvements and fits well with the gym uh i haven't seen him since this whole quarantine thing hit i don't know if he's coming back or not but uh it's nice to have another top guy in the gym uh, so happy to have him and i'm sure you've been working with george quite a bit um how's that been how's how's george uh, george keeping and and i imagine he's still in peak physical shape like he always is i haven't seen him since this quarantine thing started I, he hasn't been training with the guys so <laughs> i don't know i don't know i think he's uh He's uh, he's self isolating or something, <laughs> but he is in good shape. I've seen his training videos. He's still in top shape. All right, Rory. Well, it's a pleasure uh, catching up with you. It's the uh, the Red King Rundown. It's uh, a mini series that the PFL is putting out. Uh, the first episode, I believe, is out quite soon, uh, and you can check it out on the uh, the PFL's YouTube page. Uh, I always appreciate speaking with you, Rory. I hope everything uh, is well with you with your kids, and uh, that you get in there sooner rather than later. Thanks. I think it's June thirtieth, the Tuesday. June 30, yeah, yeah, that's this this coming Tuesday is the uh, the launch, so uh, you can check yeah. that out. It's coming out in six parts, I believe, and uh, you can see uh, a lot of your early career, a lot of your workout regimen, and uh, some uh, some heavy hitters in it for Azahabi, GSP, Randy Couture. So we're uh, we're looking forward to to checking that out. Thanks for your time, Rory. Thanks. That was Rory McDonald on the TSN MMA show. Uh, great interview with Rory, and we got so much coming up right now. In the it's amazing how many events there's going to be between this next weekend, July 11th, and September. Like, you got nine in August alone if you count Contender Series. I think you got even more spilling in, into September. You might see, like, nine in September also. And then you've got, I think it's five in July? Because you got the Wednesday card. you got the 11th, the 15th, the 18th, 25th. So I guess maybe it's just four. But that's a lot of events. The UFC is just... It's a juggernaut right now. You just, like... It's just... Week after week, you've got event after event after event. Uh, I'm getting tired just thinking about it, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I love all of these fights. You know, like, people say there's too many events. If there was an event every night I'd watch, I honestly would. I love the sport so much. I love covering the sport, um, and it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I also want to give kudos to Robin Black, my colleague at TSN. He's uh, been once again nominated for Analyst of the Year at the World MMA Awards, um, and he's very deserving. He's... Uh, one of, of course, the bright minds in, uh, in mixed martial arts when it comes to breaking it down. Um, so kudos to him on that. Uh, what else do we got? What other, what other news do we have on the horizon? Um, we've got, uh, well, the Kay Hansen win over the, the, this past week was really interesting. She's 20 years old. And some controversy came with her because she, was, uh, she had a shirt when she was in Invicta FC promoting Candace Owens. And uh, people do, I guess people didn't like that. Um, Candace Owens obviously a very controversial pundit in terms of uh, politics these days, but uh, Kay has since said that uh, she was manipulated, those are her words, not mine, into controversial messaging uh, on her shirt. Um, I think the thing that stood out to me the most was that uh, she, was, she was born when uh, The Significant Other by Limp Bizkit was the number one album in the, uh, the country, which makes me feel extremely old. 
So uh, thanks to Kay Hansen for making me feel uh, extremely old. Um, Contender series. I'm starting to hear about some uh, some Canadians that might be on that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and just wait to see uh, what's finalized before I, I can discuss those. Um, one thing that I noticed with the World MMA Awards is they they did not include city kickboxing among their gyms of the year. And like to me, if you're gonna look at gym of the year, like city kickboxing is like possibly number one. They didn't even nominate that. So I don't know what what happened with that. So uh, very interesting. As to why uh, why that's the case, but um, I'm uh, I'm I don't know why that happened or or how that was you know overlooked. So very interesting set of circumstances there. I've enjoyed listening to the interviews. Uh, Dan Hooker did a great interview with Submission Radio, and uh, Dustin Poirier uh, did an uh, interview I spoke about earlier in the show with um, Ariel Helwani. Both were great interviews. Just hearing how they feel, you know, a couple days removed from that kind of a fight was very interesting. Seems like they've got a really strong mutual respect for one another. Where does Dan Hooker go from here? I think it's a good question. I think Dan Hooker has shown that he is just on the cusp of the elite at lightweight. But, uh, I mean, I don't know who a suitable opponent would be next. Now, if if Poirier decides to wait, I think a Ferguson-Dan Hooker fight would be a lot of fun and would tell us a lot about where both those guys are at in their career. That's absolutely certain. Um, still waiting to see what happens with uh, Brian Ortega, Korean Zombie? I know that's uh, that's been discussed. Uh, nothing final there, but uh, yeah, I just I just can't wait for all of these different events. I think there's there's going to be so much to um, to look at over the next little while when it comes to uh, how everything's going to shake out. I mean, these three title fights are extremely interesting for a UFC 251. You of course have uh, Gilbert Burns. And Kamaru Usman. Usman has moved to uh, Denver. He's training now with Trevor Whitman. So he's left Henry Hooft. Uh, Hooft has kind of recused himself from this fight. He doesn't want to be in the corner against Usman because of their close relationship. So uh, Burns will have other corner men from Sanford MMA in his corner. And uh, that's going to be a really interesting one because I'm sure these guys have had a lot of mat time together given that they're around the same size. Of course, same weight class now. Burns was at 55 before, but has always been a, was always very big for that weight class. Um, man, his ascension to the top of that division has been wild to watch. It's like a year and a half Gilbert Burns is now in title contention in a division that has a lot of perennial contenders. Um, featherweight division. Alexander Volkanovsky keeps talking about how he's going to finish Max Holloway and put uh, put aside any questions that might be left over from that last fight. But uh, that's an interesting one. Volkanovsky versus Holloway on the island. Um, Volkanovsky doing most of his trip, I guess all of his training camp in Australia, but Eugene Behrman is making the trip to corner Volkanovski uh, in Fight Island. Uh, Piotr Jan against Jose Aldo. I'm putting together a feature on uh, Jose Aldo for next week because it's interesting. These two guys, if you look at Aldo when he was in the WEC and Jan where he is now, they had a very similar reputation. Like These guys were like incredible strikers, guys that nobody wanted to face, um, young up-and-coming guys. I mean, Aldo back then was a young up-and-comer, was obviously the champion very quickly, and Jan has a very similar trajectory in his career. But the other part of that story is, what happens if Aldo wins that fight? What happens if Aldo leaves Fight Island as a, a bantamweight champion, now a two-division champion, a three-time, I think he's a three-time featherweight champion, and now uh, on top of that, a bantamweight champion? Like, like, I feel like Aldo's reputation has really taken a hit since the loss to Conor. If you look at where he was at before that fight with Conor and where he's at now, I mean, people still, a lot of them consider him the greatest featherweight of all time. I'm in that boat. But um, I feel like, you know, people don't put him on, like, around Mount Rushmore uh, of mixed martial artists anywhere. They don't have him. A lot, I think a lot of people, if you ask them their top ten mixed martial artists of all time, a lot of people wouldn't have Aldo on that list. And I, I think that's um, just a lot of recency bias. I think that if you remember Aldo back when he was in the WEC days and how much of a killer he was, and uh, then into the UFC, how consistent he was at defending that title. I think you got to at least have them in that conversation. I would have them in the top ten off the top of my head. I'd have to go down a list. But, I mean, I mean, he's a lock as a Hall of Famer. But what would it do for his career if he came back, won the Bantamweight Championship, moved down the division, won the Bantamweight Championship? Man, I mean, that would be some legacy, legacy stuff right there if he's able to do that. That's the one I think is the most interesting in terms of story. For Fight Island, you got a young up-and-coming guy, Piotr Jan, against uh, Aldo, uh, and then you got uh, Jessica Andrade, Rosnama Yunus rematch, rematch, and uh, Amanda Amanda Hibas taking on 
Paige Van Zandt, and what might be Paige Van Zandt's last fight in the UFC. She's a massive underdog in that fight. I think she's like a five or six to one underdog at this point in time. I'll go check that out for you. Be like, I always like looking at these uh, these odds before they uh, before these events. Uh, Usman minus two forty against Burns plus two hundred. I think there's some value on Burns there for sure. Minus one ninety for Volkanovski against Holloway plus one sixty five. That's probably about where it should be based on the last fight. Uh, Hibas, yeah, minus nine hundred. Van Zant plus six hundred. Wow. That is a, a very, very, that's a chasm of a line right there. She might be the biggest underdog to win a women's fight in the UFC if she wins that fight. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Holm might have been in the area code, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big gap. Uh, Piotr Jan minus 220 against Aldo plus 180. That's probably about where it should be as well. Uh, Rose Namajunas minus 175. Even though she lost last May to uh, Andrade in Brazil, uh, Andrade plus 155. Andrade has not fought, I don't believe, since uh, that loss to Zhang Veili. Uh, let me double check that. Correct, yeah, she has not fought since uh, last August. Wow. Man, that, that, August is sneaking up on us. That does not feel like that long ago. I remember being in Anaheim uh, when that fight... Uh, it was, I guess, the and I was in Anaheim the week before that fight, or two weeks before that fight happened, if I recall. And it'll be about a year when uh, Cormier and Stipe face each other once again. Um, other fights on that card, Halion Paiva versus Zhaglas Jumagulov. Uh, Yuri Prohashka against uh, Volkan Uzdemir, Danny Henry, Makwan Amirkani, Carol Rosa against, I guess it's Hosa, Carol Hosa against uh, Vanessa Mello, uh, Leonardo Santos returning against uh, Roman Bogatov, Alexander Romanov against Marcin Tibera, Zaleski Dos Santos, Elezio, Zaleski Dos Santos against Muslim Salikov and uh, Davy Grant against Martin Day. So, so it's very stacked at the top and a little bit watered down at the bottom, but a uh, fun card no less. Other good fights on the fifth. You have a card on the fifteenth, eighteenth, twenty-fifth, uh, and then the UFC, I believe, is back in Las Vegas for August first. First. Okay. Okay. Before we wrap up the show, there's one more guest I want to get to. I I know I was just wrapping it up, but there's a very important happening going on as uh, the lone Canadian that's going to Fight Island, uh, at least Canadian-born fighter, is uh, Jesse Ronson, who just uh, we just announced uh, today uh, that he will be re-signing with the UFC and heading out to Fight Island to take on um, another fighter that was in the UFC, ended up having a cup of, cup of coffee outside the UFC, and now is back in Nicholas Dalby. He's had one fight back, I believe maybe two, since uh, rejoining the UFC, and that's uh, Jesse Ronson uh, hailing from London, Ontario. So Jesse, it's Canada Day. I'm sure that it's uh, obviously fun uh, for everybody in Canada uh, on Canada Day, but for you, an extra special Canada Day, one that you probably will never forget. A hundred percent, yeah. It was, um, well, it's 10.30 at night, and uh, I get the call going, uh, July 25th, 170, Nicholas Dalby. And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, no, 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 I already I already said yes for you. You're doing it. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And they're like, yeah, don't fuck it up this time. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm in shape. I'm ready to go. And if it's at 170, I can do that for sure. No no excuses this time. Well, the last time was 155, correct? And you, you weren't... Uh, you, you told, I guess, the UFC that you weren't able to get down to 155. What happened in that situation? Refresh my memory. Okay. Um, I was coming off a, a torn hamstring injury, and I was just resting it. And uh, I got the short notice call for the UFC. But, you know, I wasn't training at the time. And I literally had to, I had, I think it was like, I got the call on 11 days. But I had a feeling that it might happen. So I started doing this extreme, like, crazy diet like 16 days prior. So I went from 191 down to 175. And then the, the UFC nutrition is like, no, dude, you're not making 155. He's like, you look awful right now. And uh, so I tried to negotiate a catch weight and they said, no, uh, no can do, which I should have just lied and, you know, cut to 160. Cause I saw a lot of guys lately. Well, that's lately, but uh, back then probably would have been a different story, but you know, should have done something, but, you know, I just decided to be honest and say, no, I can't do 55. I need to do a 160. And uh, Clint, the guy that works for the UFC, was like, yeah, 160 is doable. You can try that. So they said no, and then they released me, and there's a huge, you know, fallout there. But luckily, things got patched up, and here I am now. Yeah, that must be difficult, because when that happens, you're probably thinking, well, that, there goes my last chance of getting back into the UFC. Yeah, I uh, especially with the, the message that I got saying uh, – that I'll never ever fight in the UFC again after that uh, really sucked. That hurt deep. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and uh, like I said, um, Sean Shelby was just mad. 
And uh, it took a couple of months, but he calmed down. You know, I sent him a few messages. People reached out to him for me. And, uh, yeah, things uh, obviously have gotten better. So back then, was there a message that he had sent or somebody had sent to you saying, this is what needs to happen before you can get back into the UFC? No. Uh, when I sent him an email, um, and he, he read it, it was around April is when, when he started talking to me again. It was December 2018 that the fuck-up happened. So April 2019, we started talking. And he goes, look, Jesse, I was heated. It's not... He's like, I get it should happen, especially with the missed weight. And he's like, this is uh, the highest level. We shouldn't have to do catch weights. And I'm like, I understand that. And uh, he said, I, I was just mad at you, and I took all my frustrations out on you. But it wasn't really because of you. It was because I felt bad for Diego Ferreira because he had two other guys drop out, and then you dropped out, and then he got Kyle Nelson. So he's just like... I was just super frustrated with that fight and trying to set it up and, and everything else and try to get it done for him. And uh, he's like, who knows where you'll be in six months? Just keep uh, keep doing your thing, keep getting wins, keep piling it up, and uh, we'll see. And when he said that, who, who knows where you're going to be in six months, I was like, oh, shit, maybe I got a shot here. Well, I can understand why he'd be upset. Being a matchmaker must be an almost impossible job. Like, you have something lined up, that falls through, something else falls through. You, you want to get this guy a fight. It, it's just, it must be chaos having that job uh, year-round. I, I can't imagine that Sean Shelby takes even a week off during the year. No, 100%. Yeah, his job is probably the most difficult because he's got 600 athletes between, was it him and Mick Maynard that they got to deal with? And, again, you fly this guy from Brazil and you get all his paperwork done and everything else, and then the guy drops out and they get me on 11 days, and then I ended up having to, to drop out because I couldn't make the weight. And then you got Kyle Nelson on two days. Right. So it's just a huge pain in the ass. And it's like, it's actually, I remember him specifically saying, uh, he's like, do not fuck this up. Cause he's like, I don't want to have to deal with the extra pay. He's like, I don't want to have to do any extra work. He's like, all my work for this card is done. He's like, don't make me do extra work for this card. And I ended up being the guy that made him do extra work for the fucking card. <laughs> <laughs> well, this time around, 170 pounds, I think you're going to be okay. You've got, what, four, three weeks to cut it. And I'm sure that you're probably not walking around much heavier than 170 these days anyways. So, yeah, that time where I was going to fight Carlos Diego Ferreira, 16 days out, I was 191. And I'm already lighter than that now. And I have, you know, 23 days to weigh in. And uh, I told him in my email, like, I've been emailing Sean Shelby for a, a little bit, telling him I'm ready, like, COVID, I haven't stopped training and everything else, but it's going to have to be at 170. Because in order for me to get down to 155, it costs a ridiculous amount of money, and I don't have the training partners or the facilities open all the time for me to do the two days, three days that I need. And I'm like, I can't just maintain that low weight or else I get injured because, you know, I've torn my calf, like, trying to maintain a 55 weight short notice i've torn my hamstring trying to maintain 55 for short notice you know i've herniated discs uh just maintaining a low weight so i was like i can only get down to the 55 cut range and maintain it for two weeks at most and then injuries start happening so i'm like it's got to be at 170 and i'm like there's no excuses this time at 170 because i'm not going to come in and you know only cut three pounds and be like i when i fought alex Sakin. uh so i'm like there's no there's not going to be much size advantage for the other guy like i feel good i can get this done well, you know, it's funny, hindsight's twenty twenty. but when you look at your UFC, um, I guess your original UFC stint, which ended uh, about six years ago, almost to the day, your last fight was July the 6th, 2014, so almost exactly six years from today. Um, when you look back at who you lost to and how you lost, you're talking split decisions to Prezerish, to Trinaldo, and to Kevin Lee. Like, those are all guys that ended up being ranked in the top 15 of, their, of either welterweight or lightweight at some point in time, so... Um, you know, back then those guys weren't as established, but now you look at where they were at and it seems like it was a pretty bum rap that you got cut in the first place. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it was a little upsetting getting cut. You know, I see like guys like I like Mark Andre Barrio, don't get me wrong, but they, they gave him his, his fourth shot in UFC. Right. And he went out there and he put it on for them. But, uh, I understand why Jill Silva did what he did back then because we were sitting in the Brazil airport after I lost to Trinaldo and he goes, when do you want to fight? who do you want to fight and where, where do you want it to be? And so I gave him all these, and he literally hooked me up, like everything that I wanted. I said, Kevin Lee in Vegas fight week. And he got it done for me. So it's like the fact that I said that I was going to, you know, smash him and I never did. Joe Silva was probably like, okay, well, this was the guy that you wanted. And it was everything that you wanted and you still couldn't get it done. So, you know, maybe you're just not ready. Go win a couple more. And he actually told me after the fight, he's like, go win a couple more fights and hit me up and we'll see what we can do. 
You know, like you had, it sounds like you had a good relationship with Joe Silva. A lot of people have been coming out with these stories lately about Joe uh, not treating them necessarily fairly. No, yeah, I've only had good, like, I've heard a lot of bad things about Joe, but, you know, the the, the couple of experiences that I have with Joe are, are super awesome. Like, I only talked to him briefly in Toronto for about five minutes. I got to spend about four hours with him in the, the airport in Brazil when we were coming home. And then again, I only got to talk to him for about five or ten minutes after my Vegas fight. But all all three times that I talked to him and everything else, he was super nice. He was, you know, super fair, everything. And, like, even the times where I text him on the phone, he never gave me one-word answers like he did everybody else. Like, so, you know, I I guess Isaac Valley Flag had some good relationships with Joe Silva, too. But then there's a lot of people that, that haven't. And I'm just fortunate to be one of the guys that, you know, have been good. And it seems like things are patched up with Sean Shelby. So you're you're in everybody's good books right now. I'm hoping things are patched up with Sean Shelby. <laughs> well, and uh, we'll find out. Maybe I'll talk to him in Abu Dhabi if he's got time. We'll see. But uh, yeah, I know. I'd like to make. I'd like. I just want to make sure that everything's all good. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Barrio got his fourth shot, and and he put it on uh, Oscar Pachota. Um, do you think of this as your fourth shot? Like, do you think of this as like this is this is where I really need to show out? And uh, and prove that uh, that I belong here. And a guy like Nicholas Dalby's the kind of matchup that you really relish. You know what? It's to me. No, I don't think of it as that four shot. That would have been against Carlos Diego Ferreira. It's uh, it's hard to explain. You know, Nicholas Dalby is a good matchup for me because um, he's a striker. Uh, you know what? The, the last time I said that going up against strikers, they they wrestle me. But I'm comfortable. You know, like I said, it's been six years since I've been there. I'm comfortable. If he wants to take me down, let's fucking go. Like, I'm okay at wrestling. I'm okay on the ground. Like, I just beat a D1 wrestler and a jiu-jitsu black belt in my last fight. Like, I'm, I'm comfortable no matter where it goes. If he wants to strike, like, let's make some bonus money. You know what I mean? <clears throat> now there's no excuses. There's there's nothing holding me back. It's just it's I'm here for a good time, not a long time, and I'm going to make the most of my time. And uh, I'm just this is I'm going to show everything that I got. And you fought in Abu Dhabi before. You're actually on the good card. You're on the July 25th card. And the reason why I call that the good card is because the only card that's happening on Fight Island is actually conducive to local time there. I think it starts at like, uh, I think it's 10 a.m. Eastern, which is about like 6 p.m. in Abu Dhabi. So you're actually going to be able to acclimate to the, the time there and fight at a normal time, which uh, everybody else fighting in Abu Dhabi, aside from on that one card, is not going to have that kind of luxury. Well, you just made my day because I was just talking with a few people about that. They're like, hey, when are you going to be fighting? Is it going to be like 3 in the morning for you or what time is it going to be at? So it's good to know that I'll be fighting at a regular time. That uh, that just makes it even better. Yeah, you're, you got lucky because the main event for that is Whitaker versus Till. <laughs> you know, the market, yeah, the market in the U.K., uh, they, they want to watch it at prime time and uh, Australia wants to watch it at a good time. So they actually made that one. Uh, it actually works well with Abu Dhabi time, so they actually made that at a normal time in Abu Dhabi. Perfect. That's what I like to hear. All the people in Canada don't want to watch me fight. They, they'll stay up or they'll get up early. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you'll be I good. Got... It starts at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Eastern, so they'll be able to watch you at a, at a reasonable time. I like it. <laughs> there you go. I'm glad I, I'm glad I give you some uh, some information there that's, uh, that's going to help you. So uh, <laughs> tell me about your experience in Abu Dhabi. If only you had some information on how I was going to get there. Some people are telling me I'll fly direct. Some people say I'll have to go to England and get a charter. Some people are saying i got to go to Vegas and then fly over there, which I hopefully don't have to because it's like five hours to Vegas, and then it's probably going to be like 15, 16 hours from Vegas to Abu Dhabi. That would suck. So. Yeah, not to mention it's the number one place for transmission for the coronavirus, I believe, in the, in the U.S. right now um, is, is Las Vegas. So you might, if you can get to another hub city, that's probably your best bet. Yeah, that's why my manager's like, hopefully they do Toronto direct, because that's what, that's what happened the first two times I fought in Abu Dhabi. The first time I went Toronto to England, England to Abu Dhabi, and the second time was just Toronto direct. And the direct flight's what, like 11 hours or something along those lines? It was 12 hours. 12 hours direct, Toronto to Abu Dhabi. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. 12 hours is doable. Yeah, I just tried sleep most of my... Yeah, sleep sleep on the plane, so we'll see. When you fought in Abu Dhabi, do you have any interesting stories about uh, those experiences? Um, yeah, both of my fights were in a ring. <laughs> both of them were against Russian guys. Um, the very first hotel that they put us in, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like the world's largest leaning building. It's the most gorgeous hotel I've ever been in my entire life. Like, 
the hotel room that they put us in had two king size beds, and uh, it was huge. It was fucking bigger than the house that I'm staying in, and it was just absolutely amazing. And then the second time I fought in Abu Dhabi, they put us in this like little dive hotel. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Could barely fit two people in a room. Um, uh, other than that, um, I don't really have any interesting stories because Abu Dhabi was just plain and simple. Like I went to the Sheikh Zayed Grand Mosque and they made me, cause I have tattoos. I had to wear the robes and cover it up. Um, uh, yeah, that didn't really do much cause you can't go out and drink there or else they'll throw you in jail. You can't do, you can't do anything. <laughs> I'm surprised they have dive hotels in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi is a very rich country. Well, I wouldn't say it was a dive hotel. The hotel itself was nice, like the the swimming pool area, everything else. Like, it was nice, but the rooms were exceptionally small. It was like two single beds and a desk. Like, it was tiny. And, uh, yeah, they were just really, really small rooms. But as soon as you got out of your room, the rest of the hotel was awesome. Just the room sucked. Whereas the first hotel that I was in, everything about it was amazing. So because you took this fight on short notice, uh, typically that means that you get another opportunity afterwards, um, as long as your fight isn't like utterly boring and that your fights don't understand how to be utterly boring, so I'm not worried about that for you. Um, but are you looking uh, mm-hmm. at this as more than a one, one-time deal? Yeah, for sure. I'm looking to win at 170, and then maybe later on this year, well, not maybe, for sure later on this year, drop down to 155 and really showcase, because that's where I'm best at is 155. Like... I, I, the way things are going these days in the last couple of fights is that people just can't handle the power, and I you know I, I just have more success at 155. As you get older, is it tougher for you to cut down? Actually, no. My uh, last couple of fights at uh, 55 have been super. Like I've been able to get down to like 153, and then I get to rehydrate back up. <laughs> oh wow! That's like good. without even <laughs> without without even trying to get down to 153, like I just do. It's taking me. Less time, like I, I'm cutting, like less, like uh, what I so imagine I, I'm cutting weight for six hours. Well, what would normally take me six hours, I'm doing in four hours, and I'm overdoing it. So when everything's firing, everything's good and making way too easy. That's why 55 is where it's at. It's just this time it's 170 because I put on a little size and like just because I'm maintaining my training, I don't want to get injured, so I'm eating a lot. So I'm just happy with way. Things have worked out. One seventy now, one fifty-five next. Well, we're uh, we're happy that Canada has someone to get behind. Uh, before we uh, spoke, I mentioned you were the lone Canadian uh, representing Canada on Fight Island. You mentioned uh, Deanna Belbita, who trains uh, out of Stony Creek. She's from Romania, but we can get behind her as well. You know, we need our Canadians to uh, to succeed. Uh, really great to see you back in the UFC. Uh, you know, I've been pulling for you uh, all these years. We've been chatting, and you know, I've been hoping that uh, you were going to get another opportunity after what happened the last time. Uh, with the situation with Veheja, and I'm, I'm happy that situation has come to be. Uh, your fights are always exciting, and uh, I know that uh, you're going to find your uh, your footing this time around in the UFC. Uh, best of luck against Nicholas Dalby and Fight Island, and again, we got a country behind you. All right, I appreciate it, my man. Thank you, and I appreciate your time and the phone call. That was Jesse Ronson, who's heading to Abu Dhabi to face Nicholas Dalby on July the 25th. And that's all for this week's show. We'll be back next week with more. We're going to update uh, you on everything going on in the world of MMA and preview all of the different events going on in Abu Dhabi. Thanks for tuning in.